Welcome to Crossroad International Church, where it's all about Jesus. If you are in Kuwait and looking for a church to call home, we would love the opportunity to welcome you at one of our Friday services. Now, here is this week's message. feedback loop. So what happens, and i got the mediums in front of me, they'll probably correct me afterwards. From what I understand is that information, sound information from the speakers goes into the mic, and then it goes around and around, and it speeds up very quickly until more and more information is processed, making a very loud sound. Am I correct? Something like that? Something more or less? Maybe more or less than more? Um, and we have feedback loops in all parts of our lives. Um, you are hungry. Your, your body sends a response to you. When you eat, the, you get pleasure from that, which makes you feel satisfied and gives you energy. And then that process repeats itself. And there's lots of feedback loops that are part of the human experience. And I'm a person who um, oddly likes uh, motivational speeches and motivational um, videos. I just find that very fascinating because they, especially when I'm like at the gym and I'm working out and I feel really tired, hearing people kind of yell at me and tell me I'm amazing and tell me I can do it and I can, I can do it. It makes me want to do it. Um, and these motivational talks or videos, they, they tell you that you are amazing. You can do this. You are a wonderful machine. And part of that's true, but part of that's very broken. Um, and my text this morning is going to be a feedback loop of a different kind of nature, a different, uh, a different way that we can get confidence and get motivation and get strength and get help. Because the problem is when we, in yourself, if you know yourself, you know that there's times when we are, don't feel amazing. We feel terrible when we can't do it, when we give up, when we quit. So you can't, you can't fake that, right? Because humans were imperfect. So this is kind of, the author of Hebrews is going to give us some biblical motivation. So I'm going to read the text, and we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Therefore, this is Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, if you have your Bibles. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for these people. I just pray that you would use the words from your text and my words to speak to them and change them and help us all to grow. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. So if you are new here, and I actually saw some new faces, I see new faces every week now, which is really good. Um, We are doing the book of Hebrews. That's why we're in Hebrews 3. Now, this book is a challenging book, and I describe it more as a sermon than a typical letter. If you, if you read books like Romans, you have truths that are built one upon the other, very foundational, and it goes up and up and up. However, with Hebrews, you see a lot of circular things and themes and ideas come back and forth and back and forth. So it sounds like he is preaching, the, the author is preaching more of a sermon going back and forth to various concepts in the book. And the book is about encouragement and exhortation in the midst of sagging faith, faith and persecution. So where they were, likely, from what we know, we don't know very much, they were likely Greek-speaking Jews in various synagogues, likely in um, Rome or Italy. Near the end of the book, he mentions, greet those from Italy. And we think, because the book is written in Greek originally, instead of Aramaic, which would be more towards the east side, you know, where Jesus did his ministry in Nazareth, the locus of control and change started moving western very quickly in the mm, 20, 30 years since the death of Christ and his resurrection to Rome, because Rome was the largest empire at that time, one of the greatest empires in human history. So the the locus had changed, and Judaism was a big religion. It had it spread just beyond uh, the area of Palestine and Israel. A lot of people were were interested in it, and 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 a lot of people came to hear about this community that had a had an answer, had a monotheistic God, the first one that had this concept. So you see a lot of people migrating to this. You see this in Acts. When it says the Hellenists, if you look in the early chapters of Acts, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. So he's speaking to Greek-speaking Jews. It was written in the mid-60s AD. Um, Around that time, persecution had just started happening. Uh, The emperor Claudius was likely the emperor over this time because it said they were expelled. If you read later in the book, they were expelled from their homes, possibly in Rome, and it was going to continue to heat up under Nero. So he is, wants to encourage these people because they feel stuck. These people feel stuck. They don't know what their future is like. They miss their whole lives were focused on their, on their faith in the God of Israel. And then what happens, they became Christians, and a lot of them were kicked out. The, the Jews were not interested in, in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They had their own ideas of what a Messiah would look like, and they did not accept the, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. So they were kind of kicked out from that. The government also started working against them because as these people grew very quickly to thousands and hundreds of thousands likely by, this, by the mid-60s, The Roman government is concerned, like, who is this sect that is growing so rapidly and so fast, and they're willing to do anything for their faith, and they're fighting a lot with other people in our provinces, the Jews, which they've tried to keep peace with. So these people are, they're lost, they're stuck, they're confused, they 
it is not the victorious life that God really had for them or that they imagined that God would have for them. They wanted to see Jesus come back quickly and return and wipe out their enemies, but that's not happening. They are struggling. They are, they are poor. They are in turmoil. They have, their identity is being confused and ripped apart because they had this old identity. There's a new identity in Christ that they have, but they're, they're kind of surrounded by people who are detracting from what they want to do as God's people. So this is where the author of Hebrews comes in and tries to encourage them and exhort them in the midst of this. So this passage is an encouragement and example of the faithfulness of Christ toward his people. It's also a feedback loop that God wants us to engage in. Instead of thinking yourself as the center, what the author of Hebrews wants us to do is to put Jesus at the center, and that shapes our identity, which then moves back to focusing on who Jesus was, which reestablishes and reconfirms our identity, which gives us the hope and the confidence that we need. So let's get to work here. Um, the first point I want to talk about is identity. It says in, the, in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So first we have to kind of move back a little bit, because what's the therefore re- referencing to? So if you can turn back to the previous paragraph... I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll start at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we can see, so the therefore is referring to all of that and more about Jesus disarming and defeating the devil. That whole paragraph, that's all referring to that because of who Jesus is. So Jesus defeated the devil by his death so that we may not fear death. He was a faithful high priest who made atonement for us. Jesus suffered so that Jesus understands our suffering and he helps us. So that's all kind of wrapped up in the therefore. These previous verses show who Jesus is and what he does. So just to one word I want to clear away is atonement, okay? Or some Bibles might say propitiation. And what that means is that it's a satisfying death because people sin. We all do bad things. Right? And God in his system requires, sin is serious to God, and it requires death. So in the Old Testament law, they had the death of animals. However, Jesus came, Jesus lived a perfect life, a perfect spotless person, like an animal, but even better. And he lived a perfect life, never, never sinned, never committed any wrongs. He was perfect, and God looked at him and punished him for our evil doings, for the wrong things we've done, for the standards that we have not kept to ourselves and to others. That's what atonement means. So Jesus made this atonement. He lived this perfect life, died in our place, and then he came back from death resurrected. And that is, that is what atonement means. So based on all that, so Jesus is 
the beginning of this feedback loop. We have to look to Jesus first, and that's how we find our identity. That's how we find our identity. So he says, therefore, holy brothers. So first, the first part of our identity is that we are holy. We are a holy people. What holy means is that we are set apart. We are different than the world. It says in in Deuteronomy or in Exodus, I can't remember which one, but it says, be holy for I am holy. Right? That's God's command to to his people. These are people who are set apart. This is an attribute of God that's bestowed to us as his followers. Because we couldn't be holy on ourselves. We could not do it. We sin every day. We sin every hour. Okay? Except for when we're sleeping most of the time. We're not sinning. So we're not holy. We're not set apart in what we do, in our actions. But we are holy because God made us holy. God made us holy by his death on the cross. Therefore, we can know, he's trying to tell them, you are holy. And he, of course he's not saying this because you see in a few, a few chapters later, he scolds them. He says, you guys are like children. You do not need solid food. You need milk. So he's not talking about their behavior and their theology and their understanding of God, but who they are positionally in God. They are counted holy, and he wants to encourage them in that. You are holy. You are different. Okay? Brothers and sisters, it does not matter what you've done or what you are even doing, but it matters that you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, if you love Jesus and you believe that he is the king who is coming back, You are holy. You are this, not based on your actions. He also says that holy brothers, that we are brothers. Even though he's a leader of the church, he calls them brothers. And this is what Norman talked about earlier. We are a family, right? They're not just, remember, they are scared. Their identity is confused, They don't know who their friends are. They probably lost a lot of their friends and their family members. So he says, no, you are brothers and sisters in your congregations. You are not people who are alienated alienated or isolated. You are brothers and sisters and love each other as brothers and sisters. You are this. You have a family. You have a family. And that's very... God's word is always timely because it's timeless. It's timely to us because many of us have left portions or all of our family behind to live here in Kuwait. And that is hard, and that is a real hurt that many people have. And maybe you feel alone and you feel isolated. But no, he's saying you, one another, are brothers and sisters with each other. You are a family. This is what Norman was saying earlier. You are family. We are a family. And that's why I'm the life group guy, so I'm going to say this, but that's why life groups are so important because it is hard, 
as a family as big as ours, to build those relationships. But in a smaller group, you can get to know each other and love each other and care for each other and serve each other and suffer with each other, all the things that real families do. So if you're not in a life group, see me afterwards or Pastor Norman or somebody else. Okay? We are also heavenly called. In that you share in a heavenly calling. So in Hebrews, heaven refers to a couple different ideas. And they're all kind of amalgamated together. Heaven refers to the ultimate, the best, and the clearest. It talks about, uh, in later chapters, the copies of the heavenly things and the heavenly Jerusalem, which is better than the earthly Jerusalem. But it's also talking about the actual place. Jesus passed through the heavens. And in 1223, talks about those enrolled in heaven. So he's talking about both the ultimate and the actual place, heaven, where we go when we die and we are with Jesus. So you are called to this. And this is something, we, I think we do a good job claiming that we are brothers. But I think we struggle to claim this. You know, there's, there's a false idea um, that goes something like this, that we are not of, if we are too heavenly minded, we are not of any earthly value. Right? If you're only focused there, you are not going to focus on here. But that is not true. That is false. That is a lie. We can only have maximum impact here by thinking about where we will spend eternity. Because if, if your mind and your body and your, your, the, all the things in your life are on here, we will not make sacrifices for Jesus. Because we think our job is too important. Our family is too important. My relationships now are too important. The favors I need done are too important. So we will, if we're only focusing on this earth, we will not make those risky choices. Our comfort is too important. Right? We, I want you to see this, that no, we are, our final destination is to be with Jesus forever in his new kingdom where there will be no pain or sorrow or death. We are called in that direction. Okay? You are not just called to work a job and to make money while you're here in Kuwait. You are more than that. You have a heavenly, eternal calling. However, if you, and if you know and you believe, you truly believe deep down to your soul, viscerally, if you know this, that you are bound for heaven, you will be able to take those risks and make those hard choices that would promote Jesus but might not promote your current situation because Jesus comes first. But if you know where you're going, if you know that's your identity, I'm in Christ, I have a heavenly calling, I am not finally bound for here, but I'm bound for there. And this is a massive theme in Hebrews. It talks about enjoying God's rest later on. Right, but if you if you believe this, this is the only place where it matters. You won't be able to do the things that Jesus wants us to do, so that we can enjoy that better. Amen, brothers and sisters. So that's our identity. We are holy. 
We are brothers. We are called heavenly. Right? Now, the second part of the loop is we need to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Man, such a great, I mean, for me, it's such a great set this morning. I loved all those songs. It was like home run after home run for me. I just love all those songs. They were great. So thank you to the worship team. Um, and because they all made us think about Jesus. I love songs that tell us a story and, and, and talk about Jesus and what he did for us and how we respond to that. I love that. So he says, let me, I'm timing myself for my own um, sanity here so I don't keep you till four o'clock. Um, it says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So who are apostles? That's the first thing he says. Jesus, consider him. And he's going to tell us several ways we can consider him. The first thing he calls them, he calls him an apostle. Now, when we think of apostles, I think of Peter, Paul, the 12, all these people. And they've done great things. So apostles are people like the 12 who are sent out. Missionary could be another word for an apostle. People who are sent out. Sent by Jesus, they proclaimed the kingdom of God. They did signs and miracles. And that's what caused Christianity to spread in those early days. It's by the apostles. This is the only place in the Bible, in the New Testament, where apostle refers to Jesus. So we see here that Jesus is the better and the ultimate apostle. Jesus is the first missionary. He, is sent, he was sent directly by Yahweh, by God, to come to earth. He took across the, the biggest culture, eternal God moving into a sinful, weak human being, clothed himself in flesh. And the author is doing this on purpose because he knows that these people have had experiences with the apostles, and they probably liked them, and they probably were hoping they would come and visit their church every now and then, Right? They were interacting with the apostles. Maybe some of the apostles even came and planted some of their churches there. But he's saying, no, Jesus is our first apostle. Jesus was the first missionary. He's the one who came to us. He is also the high priest of our confession. What is a high priest? I think of priests as people in flowing robes and big icons that's kind of what I think of when I think of priests. I was just at the, um, the cathedral doing a performance this last week, and it has all that flowing robe, making cross signs, incense, big icons, stained glass windows. It's very interesting. But so what is he referring to here? In the Old Testament, uh, the... Old Covenant was mediated and set up by priests who were around this, uh, this tent, or it's called a tabernacle, where God had specific patterns and, and ideas set up, and there were sacrifices made all the time. Sin offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, for various, uh, various issues or problems in the church things were sacrificed. Animals were sacrificed to maintain the relationship with God. So the distinctive responsibility of the high priest 
He is the one who enters the inner part, the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies of the, temp, of the tabernacle once each year on the Day of Atonement, atonement we talked about before, appeasement for sins. And he brings out the, the priestly role as a whole. Standing before the mercy seat, the high priest sought God's forgiveness and mercy for the entire nation. For without God's mercy and forgiveness, the covenant relationship with Israel could not continue from year to year. So he was restoring and establishing the relationship between God and his people by making sacrifices. That's the high priest. The high priest was the mediator between God and the people of Israel. He is the mediator. Just like when you have a conflict with somebody and you can't resolve it, you sometimes bring in a third party, a mediator, to hear both sides of the story and come together. Well, Jesus is the better high priest. He is the true high priest because he established a permanent relationship with God. You'll hear later that the, the high priest had to make sacrifices every year and could not continue because he died. Right? He had to have another high priest. Jesus has an indestructible life. And he is a perfect, he made a sacrifice once for all for us. So he brings us in a perfect relationship with God, which allows us to be holy. The high priest was also taught God's people, and Jesus is a better teacher. Many of the times he was called rabbi, which means teacher. His mediating power renders us perpetually holy in his sight because of the great exchange, which means that all, not only does God take away our sin through the blood of Jesus, but we also get God's righteousness through the blood of Jesus. He lived a perfect life, and we get that, right? He takes away all of our sin, removes that, and in place, he, we get all Jesus' righteousness. So he is a better mediator, a better high priest. The high priest of the Old Covenant could only take away those sins for a short time until the next sin or the next year came around. And it says in Exodus that we are a kingdom of priests, right? This guy, as, I, as I've read this over and over again, this guy is a master and an expert in the Old Testament, better than I can ever be. But he even references that we are, he's our high priest and we are a kingdom of priests. And he probably has this idea in mind that we are priests, we are God's children, and he is our high priest. We look to him. Jesus is also faithful to God. It says, he who was faithful to him who appointed him. And faith and faithfulness, you will see these twin concepts throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus was a faithful to accomplish his task through his suffering. And he is faithful because we are God's care and responsibility. And Jesus will never quit on us. He will never give up on us. He is faithful. We try to be faithful, but we mess up all the time. But he's saying, no, Jesus is perfectly faithful. He will not let you go. He will not let you down. That's what he's trying to tell them and tell us. He is faithful to us. He will not let you go. It does not matter what your circumstances are. God is going to see you through them, and he will deliver you from them, God willing. He says, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. So who is this Moses guy? 
So, first of all, the author of Hebrews is using these concepts. Um, Moses was a venerated person in that time period, in that culture. Moses was like the biggest hero of the faith. And for good reason. Uh, God picked Abraham of all the nations of the earth, promised him land, and that he'd be with him forever. They were sold into... They were, came to Egypt because there was a famine, and under Joseph, they populated and spread there to likely a couple million, but the Egyptians were afraid of this relationship, so they enslaved them, and they were enslaved for several hundred years before Moses enters the scene. And you can see that Moses gets almost as much time or as much time in Hebrews 11 as does Abraham. So he is a big deal. God He is a hero of the Jews, and God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He led and delivered the Jews from the most powerful empire in the world through powerful miracles, right? If you've seen the Ten Commandments, yes? The old one, I don't know if there's a new one or not, but you see the Ten Commandments, you see all those miracles, the frogs, the blood, um, the destroyer, all those things. So that's, that's real, okay? God did those things through Moses. He also led them through the wilderness. Amazing. This, these, there were no trails. There were no rest stops or uh, inns or races, places to rest. They were in the wild for 40 years. Right, and they survived it, led by Moses. And Moses also existed to give prophetic proof for Jesus. It says, if you uh, open to Numbers 12, 6, and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. See the reference here from Hebrews? With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So that's a pretty impressive resume. You get to behold the form of the Lord. You started the first covenant with God's people, and you basically saved them from everything. And much of the Pentateuch of the first five books of the Bible are based on his life. He basically, in human terms, he founded the religion of Israel. And even in the New Testament, the law is called the law of Moses. So that's how much he is respected and revered. Moses even served as the priest in the temple initially. And his face glowed with the glory of God. And God revealed his backside to him. He's probably the closest anyone has been, besides Jesus, to seeing and talking to God. He even gets FaceTime with Jesus in the Transfiguration, which is incredible, right? You got a Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Moses is one of those three. So he is a big deal. And there's many similarities between Jesus and Moses. His life began like Jesus, um, with an order for male children to be killed. 
he, Jesus and Moses both save people from oppression. Moses saved them from the Jews. Jesus healed many sickness and diseases. They both knew God's name as Yahweh. He, they were both mediators. Also, Moses was venerated looking back, but he was rejected at the time by his people, by his sister-in-law, and by and many others. They did not want him as a leader, much like Jesus. So Jesus is not, I mean, Moses is not a bad guy. He's an amazing guy. And he's saying he's faithful like Moses was faithful, right? So not, not a slam. But then it says Jesus gets more glory than Moses, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. When people do something amazing, I'm trying to think of glory in a non-religious context, but I think of it as weight or honor or value or splendor or brightness or praise. Those are all kind of words that mean glory. They, they have value, right? When somebody makes you a nice meal, you praise them. You, in, a, in a sense, you glorify them, right? You thank them. Or an amazing experience. You travel somewhere and you see a beautiful sunset and sunrise and you, and you do something really exciting and fun. You, you have glory and you, you, you enjoy that. But Jesus gets supreme glory because he did the most and he's the most beautiful. Moses was merely a tool used by God. And Jesus is the wielder of the tool. Moses was useful to build God's covenant community, but Jesus created a new and better community himself. Just like me, I'm a musician. I play the flute. I make the music. Now, I need the, I need the instrument to make the sounds I need to make, but I can easily grab another one, right? Any functioning instrument, I can play. So Moses is the instrument, and Jesus is the player. He's the musician. And Jesus is better than Moses. Moses robbed the, God's enemies of silver and firstborn sons from the Egyptians, but Jesus robbed Satan of the power of death. Moses saw and talked to God, but Jesus is God and is in perfect relationship to the Father. So we see he's much better. The author also affirms the deity of Christ here. He says, Jesus is the builder of the house, and God is the builder. So he's saying Jesus is God. We also consider Jesus by contrasting the servant and the son. <clears throat> now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was a servant of God, but Jesus is the son. A servant does what is told and does not have authority or relationship with the master. Right? I have a nanny who takes care of Elliot while we're at work. We respect her and we pay her, but he will likely go through several nannies and caretakers over his life. 
but Elliot will have a relationship with us for the rest of our lives, and he will inherit everything I own one day. He will have increasing authority in our house. Even me, when I go home in the summers, I'm also the firstborn son. So I come in from my flight, and I just take whatever I want because it's mine. We are The relationship is so close between me and my parents that there's no question of asking whose stuff is whose. I use I have a bedroom, I open the fridge, get some whatever I want out of there, and I get to enjoy that because I am the son in the house. Moses was a type and a shadow of Jesus, the prophet who will come like me, um, where it says in the middle of verse 5, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. If you can look at Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. This is already read this morning, but... I'm going to read it again here. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And whoever shall not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses was a faithful servant. But you see the author of the Hebrews saying, basically Moses was a instrument only and to testify of the greater person jesus could come later a prophet among my like myself he told the people of israel that to look for a prophet like me so moses was a faithful servant but he is worth of infinitely less glory than jesus and i want to ask you what good things moses is not bad he's a good thing what good things are you putting at equal or more value than jesus what good things are you putting of equal or more value than Jesus this morning? It could be your work. Work is good. God wants us to work. God wants us to make money. But it will not fulfill you. It will not fulfill that deepest longing of your heart and your soul. When you are no longer useful to them, they will be done with you. You will be fired. Okay? Your family. I love my family. I love family. God intended families, but they cannot bear the burden and the glory that Jesus can, right? If you put all your hope and your joy and your comfort into your family, that will crush them and will crush you because they cannot meet that need. Or comfort, God made us to relax, but if you seek it too much, it will not satisfy. Only Jesus can receive all of our glory, all of our worship. He is worthy. And it says finally, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He goes back to the identity, right? Jesus, our identity. Jesus and our identity in Jesus. He says that Moses was the house and Jesus is the builder. He also says that Moses was a servant in the house, but Jesus is the faithful son of the house. Therefore, we are considered to God 
as Moses with a beautiful relationship with him. Like talking, we get to talk to God as a friend as Moses did. We hopefully have some sort of radiant glow about us like Moses had. There is no shame. We have the power that Moses had more because we are in the new covenant and authority. Therefore, and we also know that Jesus will be completely faithful to us. What he started, he will complete. It does not matter what we've done or how we failed or achieved. Jesus will never abandon us. Elliot, I love my son, but he can be a little monster sometimes. He says all kinds of mean things to me. Just, just this week, he started this thing saying, Dad, you're not my friend. Mom is my friend. It's like, okay, all kinds of rejection here. Okay, all kinds of rejection here. That will probably continue for hopefully another 10 years or so. Hopefully not. But it does not matter what he does because I will always love him. He can be a total failure of a person, and I will love him for the rest of my life until I die. That is how Jesus looks at us. It does not matter how much we've screwed up or blown it, okay? God is going to be faithful to us because he cannot deny himself. Our identity is in Jesus. We are not our jobs. We are not our gender. We are not our talents, our weaknesses, our fears, our brokenness, our success, our money, our things, our relationships, or our experiences. Those things may help explain us, but they do not define us. Jesus defines who we are. When we do not need to try harder and do better, but rather trust that Jesus has us, this, this is the problem with worldly motivation. It's, it's basically try harder, do better. And that's what all the religions of the world are saying. Try harder, do better. But no, we don't need to try harder and do better. We need to trust Jesus and look at Jesus and think about Jesus and consider Jesus. And that will shape and change our identity. And don't give up. Keep believing Keep trusting, keep considering Jesus, keep boasting in Jesus. Not all these earthly things, these will all pass away. And you know this, if you spend any time on this earth, all the things we've sought after as non-Christians or even as Christians sometimes, they do not satisfy, they cannot satisfy. God made it that way. In conclusion, as we do this, as we think about Jesus, Consider him, who he is and what he's done. It will shape our identity. And we consider Jesus and we compare him with the things and the people in our lives, good or not so good, and show that Jesus is better. It will strengthen our hope in Christ so he is faithful, so we can be hopeful. Know that you are holy based on Jesus, that you are part of a greater calling than this earth and bound for heaven. Consider Jesus, the one who restores our relationships with God perfectly and is more faithful and better than any other person, possession, power, or pleasure, and continue to hope and boast in him alone.
know Jesus and his salvation. Our identity is in him. We think about Jesus. We compare him to other things, and we respond in hope. I hope that we can break the cycle of self-motivation and victory in ourselves and find our identity in Christ and be motivated because of him. Jesus, thank you that you are better. You are a better high priest. You are a better prophet. You are a better hope. You are a better leader. We love you this morning, Jesus. I pray for everyone here who feels shame, who feels unworthy, who feels broken, who feels like they've done something that they cannot be recovered from, that they would be encouraged this morning. That they would find their hope in you and know that you wipe out any sin, every sin. And I pray for those who are going through a hard experience or hard circumstances, who are suffering, who are in pain, I pray that they would not give up on you. And more importantly, we know that you will not give up on them. Show your faithfulness to them in a unique and a powerful way. Reveal yourself to them. Give them a revival in their hearts towards you. Manifest yourself to them. And I even pray for those who are feeling good, feeling strong, I pray that even then, this would be a great time to dig in to the person of Jesus, to read about Jesus, to study him in the Bible, in books about Jesus, so that when the, when the waves come and the hard times enter in, they would be prepared and ready for it. I thank you for my holy brothers and sisters who are bound for heaven with me, that you would bless them you would reveal yourself to them this week. That they would consider you and we would all consider you better and put you first and foremost in our lives. We love you, Jesus, and we ask for this in your name. Amen.